Hey everyone, big news. Up Next in Commerce is now available for sponsorship. If you love this show and you, or maybe your company, or someone in your network that you know may want to reach an audience of supremely smart e-commerce leaders, then reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org and I'll give you all the juicy details around what our strategic partnerships look like. Email me at stephanie at mission.org and let's chat. Welcome to Up Next in Commerce, the show that takes you to the front lines of what's happening in digital, retail, and beyond, with conversations from fast-growing startups to the Fortune 500 and everything in between. You'll get a glimpse into what's next. I'm your host, Stephanie Postles, the co-founder and CEO of Mission.org, and I'll be your guide through all the trends, innovations, and hot topics in the world of commerce. What are business leaders thinking about when they aren't winning a business? Family, travel, the latest TV show? Yes, yes, and maybe. But how about quirky business opportunities? Or little discussed financial trends? Or maybe even plant medicine benefits and alternative wellness? Mission Daily is back, baby, and our flagship podcast is better than ever. Mission Daily is the podcast for the business builder, the thoughtful marketer, the team manager, the blue-collar worker looking for new ways to think about life, finances, and health. This is for the people who want to break the status quo and laugh a little or a lot along the way. Join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we address the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about but don't often talk about. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. Hey everyone, today I'm here with Dr. Athena Kanyota, who is the Chief Strategy and Transformation Officer at PepsiCo. We're gonna dive deep into all the digital and company transformational efforts that are happening over at PepsiCo, including how Athena is approaching it from a cross-functional perspective. Athena, welcome to the show. Thank you, Stephanie. So for anyone who cannot see this beautiful woman, she is probably like the winner of background. I mean, you show up, you're in a studio, you are literally, you win. Of all the guests, 300 guests I've had, you win. <laughs> we love blue in PepsiCo, right? That's why my blue background. Yeah, I love it. So, Athena, I've listened to quite a few interviews with you, and I know you have a lot of thoughts on AI. So I thought it would actually be fun to first start the interview with hearing what is your most contrarian thought around AI, but don't tell me why, because then we're going to get back to it later on. But just tell me your high level, like something contrarian that you believe that others probably would not agree with you on. I believe in regulation in AI. Juicy. Okay. We're going to come back to that one. I like that. My tech friends won't like that. All right. So that's why it's controversial. We'll have to tag them into the podcast post and be like, <laughs> exactly. come at us. We're ready to go to bat for this one. So you were what I saw at Accenture for almost 15 years. So I worked with Accenture in the past when I was at Google, when I was at Fannie Mae. They were always around helping us in some way. And what I was wondering is, I mean, working in a company like that, you get to have insights into tons of companies. I mean, you get to see what almost everyone is doing. What made you choose to go to PepsiCo? Yeah, well, first of all, I was blessed as an individual to work first in academia, then in a great company such as Accenture and across the globe and now PepsiCo. So I couldn't ask for more, honestly speaking, in my, in my career. But what attracted me to PepsiCo is the culture of the company, very simply. The PepsiCo way... Uh, which is, you know, how we engage with our people, how we put the ethical aspect of everything that we do front and center in our, in our strategy. Employees are pretty much at the center of what we do in this company. We are a very people-centric, human-centric organization. 
And then how we develop everything around the consumer was the determinant factor why I came to PepsiCo. Now, of course, as you come to a company, you also want to truly contribute. Uh, so PepsiCo, on top of that, being a great company, has given me also the platform to r- truly change the way we run our business or we will run the business in the future. So it was a combination. Yeah, I love that. So when I was looking through news articles, what I noticed is that you joined, I think, in 2020, right? That is correct. And starting around 2020, mid-2020 or 2021, is when you start reading articles about PepsiCo is going through this huge transformation. And it's like this cross-functional transformation. It's not just, you know, an AI department or a tech department. It's like the whole entire company is all of a sudden being transformed. And I'm not going to say that's because of you, but I'm also going to say things kind of line up a little bit to maybe say you had some influence on that. So I want to hear, like, what did the first 90 days look like coming into this company? Yeah, this is where, Stephanie, the causality and the correlation. (laughs) I'm doing it. I'm doing it. Even if you shouldn't, I'm here for it. (laughs) I learned why not to do that, and I'm still going to do it. Technical minds think alike. No, definitely there is a correlation to me coming over in the company and therefore the company thinking a bit of transformation in a bit more holistic manner, right? Because uh, historically this industry, when they, you know, we were thinking and they were thinking transformation was much more of a technology transformation play, right? How do you change the infrastructure? How you move to the cloud? How you build your data infrastructure? Rather than starting from the top, I, what is the business transformation that the company needs to undergo? And then what does it mean in terms of enablers? I would say probably my first 30 days were listen and learn, right? Trying to understand what the company, what the company stands for, for our people and our consumers. And then the maturity of its capability we have in the organization, whether it's the infrastructure or vertical solutions or processes and engagement model ways of working. Then the second part of the 30 days, so it was for me to ask more provocative questions, right? Why did you do it this way and why you didn't do it this way? So it was, okay, let's just test a bit the thinking of either the functional owners or the capability owners on the boundaries of the capabilities that they were building and the direction that the company was going. And I would say the last 30 days so my, in my 90-day plan is to start putting together the digital strategy and digital transformation strategy specifically of this organization, linking it with the business imperatives in a way, though, that is modular in terms of both the build plus also the ROI that it would bring to the company. So to summarize, a a lot of it was understanding the current modus operandi, trying to understand root cause, why some of the investments, transformation initiatives were successful or not, and then synthesize and put together a vision which is much more holistic for the company and goes beyond just the technology transformation. Yeah. Yeah. So I keep hearing a theme among executives who come on here around, you can't think just within your division. We had on, um, he's like the CTO of Friendlies and other companies that were basically going bankrupt. And he's known as the turnaround guy. And we had him on the show. He's like, you have to go in there, but you can't just think in the technical department. You have to think about the whole company, which I see you doing as well. But my question is, how do you come in and enroll all the other departments and leads to work with you when you're probably, you know, one second looking at supply chain, then you're looking at the marketing department, then you're looking at R&D for the products. How did you get everyone on board to think about this with you? Yeah, it's not intuitive eh? for for any company that is organized in functions and in most of the cases in functional silos to think horizontally, to think cross-functional. 
at this moment in time, depending on the maturity again of the company, right, or the maturity of the function, you have to translate the functional domain expertise that those people have to a process mindset. What do I mean by that? The majority of the things that the company needs to operate is cross-functional by nature. Whether it's direct-to-consumer engagement, you need innovation, you need R&D, you need marketing, you need sales, you need uh, e-com to come together under one single process to drive direct-to-consumer. The same applies for net revenue management. If you want to price and promote correctly, you need to have finance, commercial and sales, supply chain, with the transformation teams on the table to define what is the right pricing and promotional strategy. So the majority of the processes that enable the operational excellence of the company are cross-functional by nature. It's just very hard for people to digest that because they are used to focusing on their part of the process and not the holistic process. So one of the things that I did when I came to this organization is do this translation. Okay, guys, let's see how your market is being run. What are the key three, four processes that enable you guys now and in the future to be faster and better when it comes to execution? Net revenue management, integrated business planning, better employee experience, consumer activation. I'm just using four of the major processes. Now, how are we have been doing things so far? All the breakdowns in terms of process. How can we have interconnected process and what does it mean for you? When you explain it this way, starting with the process, starting with the business outcomes, starting with the ROI, they come on board. If you start with the technology complexity, right? I mean, okay, what system do you need to have? What investments on data you need to have? What analytical models you want to build? This is where you lose them. Because not everyone has this technical expertise to be able to digest. What do you need to have to be able to get the, the engine, you know, rolling and driving the results? So start with the business, start with the outcome, do the translation, the business translation, first align the process, and then go back to the enablers, which is the infrastructure, the data, and the analytics. Mm, got it. I love that. Okay, so have your goals in mind first and then bring technology, which right now when you look around, you actually see everyone's just trying to apply tech trends to everything. Like, oh, NFTs, you need it. Oh, Metaverse, you need to be in it instead of being like, well, what's your goal as a company? Maybe you actually don't need all these new things. Maybe let other people test them out first and then maybe you might need them down the line. Yeah, and Stephanie, I think you bring a very valid point because one of the things that we have agreed as an organization, we don't want to be leading on everything. We are absolutely fine to be adopters in some of the things, right? Yeah. Uh, there are some other things that we feel it's a competitive advantage for the organization, so we want to be best in class. And in no shape or form do we want to be a technology company uh, in the pure sense of technology company. Let me be very clear. Our intent is not to develop software. I mean, we are absolutely happy to take, you know, software as a service from the software providers, but then build on top for the purposes of the business case, we have to drive for each of our markets. Got it. Okay. So, I mean, when thinking about how to even bring tech to this kind of company, though, or how to solve problems, did you ever run into a time when you're like, oh, this company is like has so many legacy things. It's been around for a long time. And maybe it's not moving as quick as, you know, maybe companies that you were consulting with at Accenture that were like, oh, yeah, this, that, whatever she says, we can implement it. Like, how does it feel being a, yeah, a legacy company and trying to transform it as quick as what I think you're trying to do? 
Yeah, look, I mean, whomever said that they don't feel this frustration at a given point in time, they're lying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you come from the tech world and suddenly you move to the industry, and especially kind of big multinational companies who have, of course, legacy systems, inherently they will feel at some moment in time frustration. Frustration can translate to two things. I mean, if you translate frustration and then you convert it to creativity, mm-hmm. perfect. it becomes a positive frustration <laughs> yeah. because then, okay, you, all the creative juices of all the people that you have then combine, come to a result which is good for the organization. If tra- frustration becomes more of a bottleneck and a roadblock, then it's not a productive sentiment for anyone across the company. So what we try to do is um, excite on the journey because we have people that have come in with fresh ideas as part of this transformation. And of course, like me, okay, let's move fast, guys. I mean, let's get the ball rolling. But at the same time, we said, okay, you know, let's get the ball rolling fast and the things that we can do now that we don't have inherently any any major limitations, technology limitations. But some on some of the others where, unfortunately, we have to rely on legacy systems. Let's be creative on how we drive incremental value while we transform the base, while we transform the infrastructure. We are not a startup. We are not a digital first company, right? And we will never be. I mean, we have a big physical business, which digital is a big enabler, but it's not the only enabler. So we have to be very apprehensive that whatever we do cannot disturb the business operations. And as long as people understand that, especially more the tech-savvy people, but also they feel that whatever they put in terms of effort and work yields results and they are being recognized for the work, as I said, frustration becomes creativity and then becomes rewards, a rewarding experience. Yeah. When I was looking into Pepsi a bit more, I mean, there were so many rabbit holes I could go down of like what this company does to exist. And I mean, anything from partnerships with farmers, I didn't even think about that. And that 50% of like revenue is from the food business and like what you need to do with supply chain. I mean, everywhere I was going, I was like, whoa, this company, no wonder it's like something to be studied because it's so many companies within this company to make it work and then look easy from the outside to the consumer of like, oh yeah, look at all these great products. So it's definitely, wow, that's all I have to say. No, we had a great case study and you bring a valid point. I mean, people underestimate the complexity of having so many big categories, right? We are not just a beverages business. We are also a foods business. We are not just a foods business. We are also a nutritional business. So there are a lot of facets of how we operate. And still, we don't want to be called a holding company. This is not what we want to be. We want to create an experience across the whole of the portfolio. So the complexity of our business is extremely exciting for someone like me that is driving the transformation, but it shouldn't be underestimated. Yeah, it's probably good that I underestimate it as like a consumer. That's a good thing, but in the inside. Yeah, yeah. no, I mean, for consumers, exactly. We want simplification. I mean, uh, consumers love our brands. Do they need to be confused with the proliferation of portfolio goods we have? I mean, you go to your store or online and you buy your favorite lace bag and your favorite quaker and your favorite Gatorade, right? It's uh, That's how we want to keep it. We want to create simplified superior experiences. Yeah, yeah, I love that. So, okay, I'm going to get into the AI piece now because a lot of the interviews that you've you know been on, a lot of the articles I've read are all around that. So I want to hear, you know, how you took that thinking into Pepsi. Like, what did you implement there? What was, yeah, what were you doing around AI to make the company work better and more efficiently? 
Look, uh, this is definitely a topic that I'm super passionate, right? I, I could tell. So I was like, we're going there. <laughs> I cannot forget where I come from, right? Because this is something that I studied during my academic years. And of course, this was my core expertise while I was in Accenture. The reality is AI becomes a, a weapon when you apply it to a real problem. There are a lot of problems or use cases in the company where we have used AI across the board. And uh, I want to decouple a bit what I mean by AI. I mean, AI is not just the ML component, the machine learning component, i.e. the uh, how you standardize and create models using ML techniques. AI is also the cognitive layer that goes beyond just the modeling aspect, which is uh, how do you create automated experiences and how it links with automated process workflows, data ops. So when I'm thinking AI, I'm thinking of the full value chain and not just the ML ops layer, just to be very clear. Now, we have several areas where we are using AI extensively. One is on R&D. I think probably you have seen some articles on how we use AI to create Cheetos. But I would love for you to talk a little bit about that for anyone is, who is wondering, how do you create Cheetos with AI? Yeah. I mean, if you look at our products, sometimes people forget it actually comes from real material. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, real ingredients. I mean, corn, right? The potatoes. If you break down of every single product, the attributes of the product, the ingredients, what we call the source DNA of a product, its product comprises of 20 to 30 major attributes, right? If you look though at the combinations of each of the attributes, we are talking about millions of combinations. I mean, it could be, you know, the packaging and the labeling and the grams that you have within the packet, the different flavors and ingredients that you have. I mean, these are all attributes. What we said is how can we automate this process? When we create a new product, is there a way that we do a synthesis and optimize those attributes in an auto-AI way? just to put it simply. And we managed to reduce the number of innovation and development of the new Cheetos products that we launched last year in the US to six weeks, right? The typical cycle of development in any CPG company might start from three months. Typically, it's a six to nine month period. And in some cases, it's over a year, depending on, on how severe the reformulation is in our case, we managed to contain that to six weeks. And this is something that we are now industrializing in many of the products when we are talking about reformulation. Great example, I mean, consumers still have the taste. I mean, it doesn't matter whether a human does the reformulation of the materials or it's a machine that does the reformulation of the materials. Actually, the machine does it faster, better, right? Because it looks at all the possible consumer combinations as well. So that is one great example. And another great example is as we are thinking of how we can uh, also streamline our planning process, how we link consumer demand with our customers' demand and our supply chain planning process, especially in times where supply chains are very unstable and, and you know that there is a you know, shortage of employees as well, right, in several markets. AI is helping us forecast what this demand would be in the next month, six months, 12 months, two years, and therefore plan accordingly an agile supply chain, which was very critical for us during the, both the pandemic, but even more so importantly, post the pandemic where consumer preferences keep changing, I don't know, month by month, right? Based on also the external conditions that they have to deal with. 
Hey there, are you enjoying the show so far? Well, imagine your company's advertising placed right in this very spot during a future interview with another elite e-commerce mind. Imagine your messaging and logo directly connected to the industry's most prominent innovators and thought leaders, distributed across every major podcast platform and social network. Yeah, well, it's time to stop imagining. Learn how you can partner with Up Next in Commerce and sponsor this very show. Reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org and let's have a conversation. I'm thinking about training a model right now. This is where my nerdy brain goes. I'm like, how do you make sure you're not giving it bad data based off the past year where maybe preferences were a little off or maybe, you know, like you're trying to transform a company so quickly and it's using historical data that you shouldn't be using to guide the future. How do you think about that? Yes. Very good point. So we have a what we call a responsible AI framework, and responsible AI doesn't cover just ethical aspects of the models. It also covers the data bias and algorithmic bias of the process. As part of that, we do a couple of things. From a data perspective, because that was specifically your question, we look at the stability of the data sample that we have in front of us. So is it representative of the whole time period against which we are modeling? And what is the deviation of the historical period versus the future period? Number two, is there a specific data sample that should be taken out of the full calculation so it will not create an upward or downward bias in the overall estimation? Third one, is it an actual outlier that is impacting the data altogether or there are inherent gaps in the data that we shouldn't even take it into account? So there is a whole exercise up front to mitigate against data bias. Only when we do that, do we design for the data engineering aspects of the problem that we have to solve, which then leads, of course, to more data operationalization part of the business. And then that leads to the algorithmic bias. So as a company, we have very strict guidelines on how we address it. Everyone diligently follows that. And in the cases, of course, where we need to do double check and triple checks, et cetera, of course, the human also is the one that responsibly, also based on the business constraints, makes a final decision. But I would say 99% of the cases, Stephanie, our framework catches this data bias. Got it. Okay, before the models ever created, you already have all the things that should be excluded. You have to, otherwise, what is happening is your model inherently will have bias. And it's fine if you have some type of bias that you can mitigate against, but there, there are areas where you don't want any bias, especially when it comes to much more consumer or employee-related initiatives. Yeah, I was actually just going to go right into that where I know you're big on, you know, women in tech and how hiring algorithms can essentially exclude some of the best talent that people, you know, don't even know to be looking for. And I'd love to hear your perspective on how algorithms maybe could be a little bit biased when selecting candidates or how to think about that when hiring. Yeah, I'm very (laughs) passionate about not using AI specifically for identifying candidates. Because uh, our base, currently employee base across markets, including U.S., I'm talking also the mature markets, let alone the emerging markets, is not stable. We have seen significant fluctuations pre-COVID when it comes to the employee databases that all of the companies had to work versus the COVID period where suddenly you saw, a, unfortunately, a drop on female candidates and female employees across the ecosystem. So if you use AI to be able to do specific hiring actions, of course, it will be biased towards specific segments of the population. And that is predominantly the male segments of the population. There is also another dimension that due to the lack of representation from 
specific also racial groups, think of the black community or the Hispanic community, there is also bias towards those segments. If you go back, I would say five, four years in history. So the one thing that we do as a company, yes, we use AI on specific things of the employee experience aspect. So for example, skills matching. So from the moment you onboard an employee, how do you match the skills versus the task on learning and talent development? Of course, why not? I mean, based on your personalized profile and your job, use AI to create personalized learning paths, but absolutely not for identifying hiring candidates. That's why I said every company needs to have a responsible AI framework and there have to be some hard constraints and some soft constraints. This is where, this is one of the use cases that we have to put hard constraints. Otherwise, inherently, we will create bias in in the representation of the population in our communities and in the industry. Yeah, yeah, I agree. This ties perfectly now into the top of the episode where we are talking about, you know, your contrarian opinion around how AI should be regulated, which I knew right when you said it, it's contrarian because I see people on Twitter all the time going back and forth. You've got the people who are like, everything should just be open, open source, open free, whatever, so that laws don't hold it back. And then you have the people who go the extreme the other way, where it's like everything needs to go through the government and the government is the one. I don't always see as much in between in the middle. So I'd love to hear maybe what do you even think when you talk about regulation around AI? Yeah, yeah. And I think probably we need to start with the definition of what we mean by regulation, right? Because regulation is not necessarily something that the federal government needs to impose de facto, but it could be a set of standards that everyone adopts and uses and a framework that everyone signs up for and it's monitored across the board as de facto the way of doing things, right? Look, I mean, reality is uh, if you were to compare of the development world with the user world, there's a huge gap. And that gap keeps opening and opening and opening because the technology cycles of development are becoming shorter and shorter. Think of every software that you are getting, right? I mean, it's uh, in the past, it used to be three years of development. You were getting the upgrades. Now it goes down to one year or even six months. The user cannot adopt those technology advancements. Not everyone has an engineering degree, right? Or an AI degree to be able to even understand the implications that it has in the broader ecosystem. So it is the responsibility of both the companies, the developers, plus also the user base, like companies like us, to agree on a framework that is contributing to the advancement of AI, but not in a way that hinders the actual applications of it for the average user. That that is number one. Second, a lot of things have been sacrificed historically in the name of technology advancement, privacy being one of those. So what I'm talking about regulation is I'm talking about mainly two things. One is people need to have the right to protect their data privacy. I'm not saying that we should force everyone to say no to any type of data sharing or open platform, give them the option, right? Give them the option to opt in, not opt out. The second is when it looks, if you look at the latest regulation around AI, so what the European Commission just passed actually very recently as part of the Digital Market Act, we might see its regulation, but it creates an open ecosystem, an open ecosystem for the new AI startups to tap into both the knowledge, but also the APIs of the big technology vendors. 
regulation is not necessarily a hindrance of advancement. It actually might be a good thing because it gives now opportunities for smaller players also to come through this ecosystem. So it's uh, ideally, and I'm a big idealistic, you would like governments, at least the major governments, to agree on a certain framework where it becomes a bill, where it provides them guidance to the companies, whether you are from the industry or, or the tech world, to operate against in a way that is in the interest of the consumers. This is what I mean by regulation, and not so much force every single technology company to stop operating or upgrading you know, the, their offerings for other political purposes. Huh? Yeah, yeah, I see right now it being definitely the time for larger companies to come together and work on this because the only thing I think about like around governments is that they can't keep up with how quickly things are moving. They cannot keep up. This is where we play a significant role, uh, Stephanie. Yeah, I just look at like crypto. Every time they're like, oh, let me try it. Oh, it's already like passed. Every little regulation or thought around it, by the time they get there, everyone's like, oh, we're not even looking at that coin anymore or that one imploded. Now we're on to the next or we're looking at a different proof of work. It's like changing so quickly that um, I always think, I don't know how governments are going to keep up in the future. Like now more than ever, things are just going too quickly. Yeah. And this is where if you were to think, okay, what is the role? People will say, okay, yeah, but you guys are PepsiCo. Really? I mean, you have a role to play? Well, if you were to think just in the States, we are in 100 million consumers, right? In every single household that are products of ours. Who is more likely these consumers would listen? Us or the tech companies? Because, uh, you know, our interest is, you know, to keep them smiling, to bring their joy, to make sure their experiences also empowered by technology or superior experiences. So we are not building anything to, to monetize. We are building things and you are using the technology to make sure that whatever they get from us delivers at excellence. So this is where we do play a role because we are trusted partners, more trusted partners in this space. Yeah, it's like if you're in all these households, you have a part to play. And it's not always just, you know, the obvious players that need to be looking into this privacy and data and all of that. But yeah, where are the actual products in your household? Look around. PepsiCo is all over the place. So Exactly. So I was looking at um, that you guys have plans, or maybe you've already done this, and you are creating digital hubs. One uh, in Dallas, which I'm in Austin. So I was like, sweet, I want to go see it. And then Barcelona. And I want to hear a bit of detail around, you know, what what was the, what is the purpose of these digital hubs? What does that look like? Yeah. So firstly, I'm, I'm super passionate about those two locations for two reasons, because they are excellent locations for co-creation and talent, right? I mean, it's uh, specifically on Dallas. We also wanted to be close proximity to Austin, yep, where you have an excellent... I knew that's why you all were there. I'm like, you want to be close to us, I know. <laughs> User experience, service design, type of yep. talent, etc., etc. The intention was simple. We want these to be places of co-creation, of uh, people that have complementary skills that think of user experience, service design, uh, process re-engineering, software engineering, uh, data science, cognitive AI experts, uh, data engineers, all of them to be co-located to work on the specific business initiatives that we haven't built, you know, the right products. In the case of the U.S., primary focus is our two big sectors, our beverages business and our, our foods business. In the cases of Barcelona, it's much more of a global uh, type of remit. We are blessed because we find exceptional talent. 
whether it's, you know, from the university or people that wanted to move from the tech world and actually work on real life problems. I am in Dallas tonight. Oh. So we spend time with our hub uh, there. So I'm super excited about that. But I have to say the you know, the talent that we find on both those locations, and I have to say in other locations that we have talent, is this is where we have the concentration, actually, in Dallas and Barcelona, makes me very optim- optimistic about the future of talent in the industry. Because, look, I mean, coming from consulting, it was very easy for me to tap into the best talent because this is where people think, okay, I can have a career in this space. It doesn't come intuitively for people in the overall digital space, oh, I will have a career in PepsiCo doing digital work, right? So it's, that's why having a clear vision of how that fits into the career model of the company, how they can develop and create personalized paths for them, whether it's in the digital space or adjacent spaces, and therefore be compensated accordingly was a bet for us. And those hubs are a testament of so far we are succeeding and we have work to do, right? We are definitely ramping up, but it's an exciting journey for the company. Oh, that's cool. So when when looking at these hubs, how do you know whether it's being successful or not, or it's working? Like maybe what are the goals around it and how do you know if it's working? All right. We are tracking a couple of KPIs, right? First of all is uh, what is the ROI of each of the product that comes out of those hubs? So the business uh, outcome, financial KPIs related both to the development cycle and then, of course, the industrialization cycle of the product. The second is the people KPIs, employee KPIs, i.e. retention KPIs, tenure, efficiency KPIs, right? I mean, if you were to think of why does a digital hub become successful, if you co-innovate, co-create together, then the next time you roll out a product and the next time and the next time it becomes cheaper, better, faster, right? So this is also part of the KPIs. And um, the last KPI is the adoption. I mean, they might create amazing products. Do people adopt it? Uh, and what is the level of adoption? And what is the level of NPS uh, that comes with that? So these are the main KPIs that we track. Which once again, that kind of ties to like the cross-functional mindset. You can make something, but if it doesn't actually get to the market, did you really do your job? Exactly. I love that. All right. So the last thing before we get into the lightning round, I want to ask a few questions around how you think about upskilling talent, because, you know, this is a big thing that I hear about on the show over and over around you know, the world's changing so quickly and trying to up-level your current employees and even bring people in and get them up to speed quickly is, you know, a task in and of itself. And so how do you think about, yeah, bringing people up to speed, not only new hires, but also maybe current ones who've been there for decades? Right. Look, I mean, we have people in the company that have been around for 30 years, 25 years. I'm still considered after two years like a, a toddler in this organization. Yep. So the the first task that we did in my first months is identified the level of maturity, what we call digital maturity index of the organization, not just by what we call the professional people, the people that sit in the headquarters, but also our frontline. Think of our people that sell, our supply chain people, our merchandisers, et cetera, et cetera. And it was a mix in terms of digital maturity. Of course, as you went to the younger and younger generation, this digital maturity index was much higher. I mean, the older generation was much lower. Depending on your role, it was also different. So very quickly last year, we launched the Digital Academy. Digital Academy is targeted to the whole population of PepsiCo. 
it, depending on the segment that you are sitting, it has different levels of certification or courses that you have to take to increase your skills in specific domains, some of them being horizontal, I, data literacy. Everyone needs to be data literate. They need to understand the importance of data, what they can do for you, etc. But then, depending on your position, you should have more specialization. So if you are a, a plant manager, right? Yes, you need to go through your data literacy program, but then you have to go through the specific training on supply chain transformation and control tower. Right? So you would be able to use those capabilities. So we launched that last year with segments of the population, starting with a segment in the more the, I would say, headquarter type of sector people, and then another segment in more the sales segment. And now it's rolled out to everyone. Huge results in terms of uptake. And what is interesting is that people take the certification that we also have internally. Some of them are on certification, some of them in partnership with some of the external uh, providers. And they ask for more. They say, can I do more? Can I do more? So you can see the excitement on people. And the one thing I say, we owe it to our employees to give them better career opportunities within the company and outside the company. So if this is a way that they can then promote themselves and give themselves better chances of doing another job, then this is an effort well spent and money well spent for the company. Plus, we owe to the markets that we operate that we also provide back to the community this way. Mm, that's good. Sometimes I feel like there should be just a universal training system for like, you know, anyone coming in, here's just like the baseline that you can learn before you ever apply to any company. Pepsi will want this, like any large, you know, more legacy company can kind of tap into that. We should. I mean, this is actually a great idea. The reality is every company does their own thing. I know. Right? I mean, I saw it at Google. They kept making their own stuff. I'm like, why are we? I feel like there's already probably right. a training course somewhere. That, I think, yeah. Stephanie, that's a great commercial idea, uh, right? Yeah. Why don't we launch something which is very relevant exactly yeah. for, for, for companies? Like, okay, this is the basics, guys. All of you have to do it. We have AI standards. We have training standards. Uh, you guys aren't doing enough, so we can put that one on your plate too. I think that's, that's, a, that's a great one. I haven't thought of that. Next quarter. <laughs> Next quarter. <laughs> oh, well, man, we have covered so much in this interview. This has been so fun, so dynamic. I feel like you let me go to all the places that I want to. So first off, thank you very much for sharing everything that you did. I want to move over to the lightning round now, if you're ready. Sure. Of course I'm ready. You're always ready. I don't even need to ask. All right. So the lightning round is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud, our amazing sponsors. This is where I ask you a question and you have a minute or less to answer. Are you ready? I'm ready, my friend. All right. What is a book that you recommend time and time again? Oh, Withering Heights. Oh, okay. What's it about? From Emily Brode, a very, very, very traditional book. I'm a classical Wait, 1847? That one? Yeah, my friend, yes. Okay. Wow. Yes. All right. People believe that just because I'm doing transformation, all my books are tech books. They are not. I'm one of the romantics and I believe in classical literature. So if you haven't, for the feminists, right, and our women audience, one of the best first female writers. Man. Okay, I'm looking at this now. And that was her only novel, it looks like. That was it. That was her only novel. She's yes. like, one and done. Mic drop. I don't need to do any more well, after that one. Uh, actually, yeah, she, she, used, she, she used some... Uh, male names also to publish some other ones. So it's it's a lot of lessons learned from her okay. writing experience. Man, I'll have to check this out. That looks great. And I've never heard that one on the show before. A lot of times I hear very similar 
business books. And That's why I said you will hear yeah. very different things from me. It's not about business books. I can provide you a full list and I'm sure you can learn. It's also, can we go back to classicals to learn a lot about, uh, you know, life? Yeah, I'm here for it. Do you have a hobby that you think would surprise even your friends? Ooh, surprise even my friends. Well, I think the people that know me, they wouldn't be surprised because I play tennis. So that's a hobby I do, etc. So maybe the people that don't know me that well, they would be surprised because they think I'm working all the time and I don't have hobbies. <laughs> but, but, but I'll tell you the hobby that is I like at the end of the day with my oldest, he's 13 years old, and we like to watch a movie or a, and, and actually not the whole movie, so we break it in pieces. So we say, okay, you know, let's watch the first half an hour today and the other half an hour tomorrow, et cetera, et cetera. And that's the way of me bonding with my, you know, oldest son. So it is a bit of a hobby, but it's also a bit of a family thing that uh, we have been doing. Uh, which not many people know yeah. uh, oh, I love about that. me. I love the idea of breaking it up too. Yeah, we break it so we can discuss, right? And then on this, oh, what do you think might happen, right? And, and we said, okay, no sneak peek. I like that. Let's be imaginary about what might happen next. That's good. You're like making your teenager um, talk to you. Exactly. Like, you can watch exactly. it with me, but now we have to talk. <laughs> That's right. good. Right, right. What is one of your favorite, um, it can be a commerce tool, an AI tool, just a tool that you're like, if more people knew about this, it would transform the industry. Ooh, look, I mean, I, uh, that is probably the hardest question because there are so many great AI applications that are being used. I'll tell you one selfishly. All right, let's <laughs> go for it. I like it. AI application. I wouldn't say necessarily AI tool. I love dogs. I have a Yorkshire Terrier. But because I'm so busy all the time, I have zero time to actually take him to the grooming office, etc. So Groom It is an application I live for. I mean, they come to the house, they put, you know, they, they clean up. They, it's like he comes like a changed dog after that. And it's so practical. I mean, really, what I, what I, I recommend is if every application is practical, right, and there is a gap and a need in the market, then it's a super successful application. Many technical applications are there, but they have overlap. So try to find the uniqueness in the application. For me, that's a great application. I love it. All right. Once again, I wasn't expecting that. I was expecting something maybe like, what is it? Is it Dolly or Doll 3? They know the, have you seen Doll that? 3. Doll 3. Yeah. Where they're like making full on paintings with just typing something in. And that's something I look at. I'm like, whoa, where are we going? But I like yours instead. Like, hey, this is a dog application. <laughs> Look, I mean, the, the reality is many people are freaking out with this type of application that replaces a human, right? I mean, yeah. so uh, for me, those applications need to be tested in terms of endurance, right? Great, amazing, etc. But I'm a very practical person. Even an applica application doesn't have a purpose, then it probably will disappear in terms of the business value. Yeah. No, I think I only am interested in that one because of the media space, right? I saw someone just typing in like create a movie set with a dog in it based in like 1923 or whatever and you just see this machine working in the background creating a whole scenery because they do the content creation on the back end yeah so that's what you say which is super yeah super exciting <laughs> yeah all right and last but not least what is your favorite recent purchase that's under a hundred dollars under a hundred dollars ah yes that's 
yesterday because again I have children and I play tennis. It was ping pong balls and tennis balls. Great. Because they consume that like crazy. Yeah, yeah. It's a good purchase right there. Pure happiness. It's a good purchase. It's a practical. It's a practical purchase. Yes, yes. I love that. That's absolutely the case. That's great. Well, Athena, thanks again for being a great guest. Uh, until next time, when we have you back for a definite round two in the future. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Stephanie, for the hospitality. Looking forward to coming back. Thank you. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.